So, what's the story? Feds use bad guy to catch other bad guys? Yeah, do you even know what you have there? Yes, I know what this is. Well, it's unheard of. It's a gift. And I asked around about vanilla blando. No one is... We're talking it. here. I'm telling you, whatever I got near, it made him very nervous. I know what I saw, Anna. And I've been doing this a long time, oh, okay? Don't so... do old and wise. I hate that. I'm not old. Come on, Anna. That's why you brought me in here to go after stories like this. But we're not the L.A. Times. Well, we're not small time either. There's more here, I promise you. Poor Ricky. That would be awkward. Why's that? Because he's a government informant. Oh, that's bullshit. I have a grand jury transcript released on Discovery by mistake by our Russell Dodson. And it is evidence of Blandone testifying against other drug dealers. God. Damn it, oh, Jesus, does that make sense? You would not believe the horseshit that Dodson puts me through every time I ask him who his secret weapon is. Well, it's not just Ricky. It's probably half a dozen guys is going to testify against. <sighs> they block me every time I ask for something, claiming, get this, national security. A national security and crack cocaine in the same sentence? Does that not sound strange to you? Okay. What exactly do you want? Well, the banker isn't a drug dealer. Also, there's this American expat who had a ranch in the jungle for 30 years. And he let these two American pilots land and take off from his airstrip. And he let them store dope on his property. You're talking to drug dealers and money launderers. I'm talking to Langley. Well, I'm filing. You guys do whatever you want with it. Post isn't saying we got all our facts wrong. Well, because they're not. But what the Post is saying is that we're just here to attest to the moral purity of the Central Intelligence Agency. Gary, Richard Zuckerman is a living legend. Yeah, who thinks his job is to defend the CIA. He used to work for them. He was a media intern, for God's sakes. Am I crazy? Reading this stuff is like reading Pravda circa 1953, you guys. I mean, what am I missing here? Gary, cards on the table. We got a call from corporate this morning. They are getting a little nervous, and so we're just going to take a beat, step back, look at the big picture on behalf of the paper. We don't want to print anything else till we get our ducks in a row, okay? And we're keeping you in the loop. No big deal. We're going to get at it. We are going to print an open letter saying that some mistakes were made. Don't do that. Come on, Gary. There's a bigger Don't picture here. That. Open your eyes. My eyes are wide open. What I see, I see a bunch of people that are worried about their reputations. Oh. Terrified that the Post or the Times are going to pluck you from the foothills of San Jose and give you a job on the mountaintop. You know, Jerry, you print that letter. You can't undo it. Not ever. You become a paper that tells the truth only when you fucking feel like it. Don't turn on the light. I'm John Cohen. You know that name? What you found here, Gary, is a monster. I was recruited by the agency out of college. I knew Spanish and law, and I wanted to do good. I wanted to fight some evil empire. I went to Central America, made nice with radicals, slept with some of the pretty ones, and turned in names. And then I started noticing they were disappearing permanently, the people that we hunted, murdered, all they had was a deep desire to reform the government and have free elections. That's it. After I left the agency, I worked my way into a major drug cartel. It was early Medellin. I solved logistical issues, bringing supply into the United States. I paved the way, you might say, as, as the traffic grew. 
everything grew. Yeah, there's someone in Washington knows what we do, and he's doing everything to stop us. It's all lies and corruption, Gary. You get attracted to the power, then you become addicted to the power, then you're devoured by the power. Your thing and my thing, they connected. Are they the same? Yes. They are the same. Danilo Blandone. This is him yesterday. This is you here today. Nobody wants to hear your sad story, Gary. You can go on record. And end up dead? No. And why are you here? I'm confessing. Who else am I going to tell? Welcome back. Um, it's been a couple of weeks. I've had an adventurous couple of weeks of road tripping and reunion with some old friends and wanted to share some of all of this and my experience in normal existence, roughly speaking, <laughs> in USA. But uh, the, the opening uh, clip there, that was from Kill the Messenger, um, an investigative journalist named Gary Webb played by Jeremy Renner, um, was a fantastically engaging picture. I found it gripping. I've watched it a couple of times, and it was kind of funny how I kept thinking of him like he was a whistleblower. <laughs> I had to keep reminding myself that that was actually his job, that there used to be a job called investigative journalist, and it used to be a community that held each other accountable for getting to the bottom of stories and turning over every stone and uh, making waves and rattling cages until they got the gist. And uh, if you watch the picture, he was riding high. I, I tried to include some of the best quotes there of the encounters and the arguments. Um, but it's just this careerism <laughs> culture that's that's pronounced now, and I think he was bumping into it in the earlier days, but um, where people forget, they forget what their profession is meant to be about, or paying the bills or whatever. Their career track starts to be more important than their, their calling, and... Um, so I, that, that's what I found most meaningful about the whole story. Uh, I also, he was one of the, I don't know, I guess I didn't follow all of the executions back since then, but I think he was probably one of the early ones where the CIA essentially told the world that he got whacked for, for doing his job. Um, the story was that he was found seven years after he gave notice for his job with San Jose Mercury News. He was found face down uh, with two bullet holes in the back of the head, uh, ruled a suicide. Okay, <laughs> it's tragic, um, but I mean, that's also very bold for, for the uh, powers that should not be to, to be so blatant about what they're up to. I think that was probably I know he moved to Cupertino in 97, and then so probably in the first couple of years of being there, he probably gave notice. So he, he probably was found in his, in his apartment 2005, 2006, something like that. Anyhow, um, I hope you enjoyed as much as I did, and... Um, uh, the last encounter of the clip there was uh, Ray Liotta, who was 
I, I thought that was just a fantastic exchange of somebody that essentially got sucked into the dark side and uh, and made their path, but also was making a veiled threat. Um, I thought the parallels between that movie and story and The Insider with Al Pacino and um, Russell Crowe, there's, the parallels are incredible. Even though Russell Crowe was actually a whistleblower, the pressure and the flack and the feedback for for doing what he was doing, that very, very similar between those two stories and what they had to deal with. Uh, even, even the difficulties it caused their own family life as well, of course. Um, so then at the end, I will, I will get to just update on, on mixing and mingling with the real world out here and how it's gone. Uh, all positive really. Um, but at the end I've tacked on a recent podcast from E. Michael Jones. Um, it was basically an MK ultra Michigan tie-in. I can't remember the podcaster, but the link's on the, on the podcast page. And um, I thought they tied in some really important pieces, but social engineering is the main theme of the conversation. And a couple of pieces that came out of that, one is uh, making America great, like the manufacturing base of Michigan and the threat that it had on the politics. And, and then eventually USA moving to like outsourcing leveraged buyouts and essentially getting away from their base, which which Michael Jones calls the goose that laid the golden egg, the actual manufacturing and labor base, and the value it was creating. Um, and then they do get into uh, the role that Laurel Canyon, Dave McGowan's book, um, Weird Scenes in the Canyon, and the role that Laurel Canyon played that looked, again, social engineering, but deliberately constructed to distract the youth from any meaningful uh, war protest. Uh, who knows which came first? Maybe they saw the protests coming, um, but they basically, the youth that were threatening um, the agenda, which was at that time wars in Southeast Asia, um, were just tuned in and dropped out by the LSD and Grateful Dead and uh, the doors and that whole uh, smokescreen or distraction for the for the motivated youth, and uh, and so Dave McGowan kind of dissects that and how it's hard to believe, but a lot of that was also engineered <laughs> to be a distraction. I've, I guess it's just coincidental, but I've ran, run into a few people of that era in the last few weeks, and. They still, you know, nostalgically look back on the times they had selling drugs or buying drugs or being in the drug scene and going to the, uh, to the events and the concerts and the music. And that's all great, but they still, you know, these are now people probably in their 70s. They still don't see the role that plays. They don't see the agenda. And these are the veils that are lifting for me these days. <laughs> uh, Michael Jones has a quote in that podcast it's a Latin quote, but it's basically something like, near the end, everything accelerates. And that's how it feels to me. It feels like an avalanche. We've, we've seen a few um, snowballs at the top, slowly, slowly creeping. And right now, it feels like the veils are lifting and the scales are dropping at a very rapid rate, if, for, if you're paying attention. And so the, that's one of them. Yeah, well, I'll get to I'll get to my mainstream interactions, but it's been it's been very very positive for me. Yeah, so I I had a friend uh, he was heading to Mexico from Canada, and we hung out for a couple weeks up here. And um, he asked me at some point, so why do you say World War Three? <laughs> and I've I mean, there's been there's been podcasters talking about that as well. My take on like it's World War Three right now. It's a war of words and it's a war of psyops. And uh, most people don't know we're in it. Um, they know we're into unprecedented times, but most people don't realize the, 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 the agendas at work. And I think what I said to him at that time, this must have been back in February, but uh, January. But what I said to him at that time was, I think 
that the world is trying to turn the world into China. I mean, and if you look at China and Sri Lanka, if you look at what's happening right there right now, oh my God, if you can't catch a glimpse of that and, and be very worried that the, the attempt is going to happen heading this way. Anyway, this this is how I see it. These are leading leading edge sides of things. Um, the financial markets and the currencies uh, seem to be starting to accelerate towards hyperinflation and some forms of collapse. It's hard to say. I, I was setting off the alarm bells in May 2020 about that because of the people I was following, but it actually seems to be happening <laughs> now. I, I, I'm not even going to come close to trying to predict how quickly that's going to happen, but uh, that's going to be very unsettling for a lot of people. Uh, I think a lot of people do have been putting a lot of energy into trying to ignore everything as much as humanly possible, and soon I think that's going to get more and more difficult, in my opinion. In terms of veils lifting, I'll just little anecdote but I'm what they call a cradle Catholic so I was baptized you know right out of the cradle and uh, I've had my lapsed years more like decades but I happen to go to church on Sunday and I'm hearing readings and I'm seeing the inscription above the crucifix in a whole new way that I've never seen before like that's to me I'm not saying I'm that special I, I'm just paying attention um, and it really feels like the veils are lifting very, very fast. Uh, I will do a quick rundown of sources. I don't, I'll just, I won't um, rehash, but I am unbelievably impressed with Del Big, Del Big Tree and High Wire and the world-class production they're constantly putting on. And they went and did a major uh, rally in LA, which is really the heart of the problem in terms of uh, the wizard behind the curtain kind of stuff. And that was fantastic. And so I'm constantly impressed and clinging on his every word. And they're not, they're not shy to branch into related storylines. They're not just about Vax and Pandemic. They're related storylines um, uh, like Klaus Schwab and Bill Gates and, and such. So they've been great. Um, Jeff Berwick continues to do world-class productions Sometimes very entertaining, <laughs> um, but he's on message and on point. And like he says, he's he can't believe he's live casting the apocalypse, but that's really what he and his, his chihuahua are doing together. Um, Jordan Peterson, I did want to mention that he's had a couple of recent podcasts. I mean, his podcasts in, in general are consistently great, but he's had a couple of recent ones that I wanted to share He's doing something quite innovative, I think. And he's basically um, he's basically researching his next book, which he said it will likely be titled We Who Wrestle With God or something along those lines. And he's researching it by going down all kinds of different disciplines and frames of thinking and interviewing experts on his podcast. So you can kind of follow his threads of how he's thinking and his insights um, by following his podcast, which has been amazing. But the two recent ones I wanted to mention um, were podcast number 258 and 257. They're both referencing lessons from the Bible, but they were lectures. One was a Franciscan college that, as an aside, they offered him a job and he never said no, so who knows what's going to happen there. <laughs> but uh, outstanding talks. I'm sure in keeping with the theme that he's building for his book, but um, like his lecture series that was called, uh, I think he had eight lectures called The Psychological Significance of the Biblical Stories. These are, to me, continuing continuations of that theme. Um, that was Genesis he was focused on at that time, but this is more general about the crucifix and the passion and, and what it means and wh how you can learn and modify your life by by following that story. So I've just found them gripping. He's had a series, Michaela is helping, I think, put these together of kind of um, patching together a various set of Q&A and interviews and things along the theme of free speech and what it means and how important it is. And I just I see now two, number 260 is a brand new one. 
but he builds on the Pinocchio theme and free speech, and you get clips and snippets of experts he's interviewed along the way, and those are incredibly engaging as well. Um, I don't know when he's planning on publishing that book. Uh, I think it's this year. E. Michael Jones, he also, okay, to me, <laughs> I, I, it's probably obvious because I keep tacking his work on at the end of uh, my talks because I just, I find him so valuable in terms of veils lifting and consciousness raising and logos rising. Um, and he's pursued a number of threads in, and researched them and published outstanding books that are well cited and um, referenced, uh, sourced. And uh, I guess I could probably highlight a few of his major, major... Logos Rising, to me, is the amalgamation. To me, that's um, the history of philosophy, in a way, and how it came together in the Christian story and how the Christian story has evolved since that those days. But he had another one called Libido Dominante, and that's basically how sexual... Uh, liberation was used as political control. He had another one around Dionysus rising, which um, I believe that's the one where he highlighted a number of intellectuals and how you can't trust their intellectual work because their lifestyle doesn't match. <laughs> or you put it another way, their intellectual work, you you get insights by knowing what their biographies are, essentially. that's a, I haven't read that, and I don't own that, but that's the story. The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit, I'm just cracking into now, but I'm positive that's the most important work for me to be focused on. Um, and that's a theme that's going to be a 2,000-year theme from from the biblical days. But explaining how... The Hebrews, who became the Jews, um, resisted the Messiah that they were promised, and how that that resistance of Logos essentially has played out over that period. Um, that's probably enough. But he, oh, and there's another one: oh, slaughter of cities and um, uh, barren metal. So, slaughter of cities was about the cultural engineering that you're going to hear at the end here, and barren metal was really about the Catholic view of economics, which is labor is the source of all value, and um, and I don't have that either. But uh, I, but to me, he's really been on the right thread. And in terms of consciousness rising, when he's asked what can people do, the, the answer is read his book, <laughs> and I believe him hundred and ten percent. That's why I have like four of them right here. Anyway, so I just wanted to say that I think he's he's on the right track. RFK Jr., his um, Defender podcast, outstanding, probably two or three a week. Um, and listening to that led me down a path uh, of the story, the Teflon story with DuPont in West Virginia. Uh, that was The film was called Dark Waters. Um, I think it was produced by Mark Ruffalo, definitely starred Mark Ruffalo and Tim Robbins. Uh, fantastic story, extremely well dramatized. And in parallel with that, I followed that up by watching the documentary that was made around the same time, and that was called um, uh, The Devil We Know. And uh, so if you put those two together, you, you get the full picture of the historical context, I mean, in terms of film-wise. Um, and then just recently... Um, RFK Jr. on the Defender podcast, uh, number 99, he had Rob, the guy that was played by Mark Ruffalo, the lead lawyer in the whole story. Um, he had him on for an update and a view on things. So if you put those three together, you're going to have a really good taste of that story. And um, I'm, you know, I've had a lot of time and energy put into corporates. And, and so I, I, I don't see corporate and capitalism as all bad. But in this case, DuPont behavior was um, uh, very bad. <laughs> What's the word? Uh, malicious behavior to their own community and their own people. So um, uh, it was very nicely exposed in, in those pieces, basically. Awaken with JP, I, I still tune in to him every two or three weeks, and he's kept it lighthearted and, 
and uh, kept it consistent with his strength, which is comedy, in a fantastic way. Uh, he's still doing, what do you call it, uh, rochos, comedy bits. Um, he's keeping that alive, which is fantastic. Um, and then Patrick Coffin is consistent. He had Michael Jones on today, and they're a good combination, but Patrick Coffin has just been fantastic with the angles he's taken, so I'm, I'm a loyal follower of his work as well. Uh, Reiner Fulmick, I tuned in to the live jury testimony. It's like a deposition, grand jury deposition they're doing, and um, they had the man who wrote the book on mass psychosis um, this week, and he was excellent. He was actually extremely articulate and lots of good energy to explain the phenomenon and the hist history of that phenomenon, how it's used and how it manifests itself. So that was excellent. And then John Rappaport, I haven't tuned into his podcast yet, but almost every email he sends, I follow or I read <laughs> and learn. Uh, and his, his bent on imagination and inspiration is, is still probably one of the most promising sources of regular uh, input from him. So that's fantastic. Um, now, I had the fortunate experience, I guess a few things. I had an old friend from Dubai, a hockey friend who got me involved with hockey locally here um, back in January, which has been great for fitness and social and meeting normal people in normal lives. <laughs> and, um, and that's been fantastic. And they have tournaments that are a lot of fun. And so that's all been great. And so, but through that, um, our Dubai team had just had essentially a reunion in Nashville, uh, centered around a tournament there, which was an absolute blast. Uh, 18 guys from nine different countries uh, descended on Nashville, and we just had the most normal, fun, celebratory reunion you can imagine. And I was a little bit worried because I've probably taken one of the most extreme paths in terms of trying to dodge the whole corona phenomenon. So I was worried about whether that was going to be interrogated or... But essentially, we just had a fantastic time. I'd say... Six to ten of the guys were very openly curious and questioning, and which was fantastic. And but socially, we all just had a great time together, just like old times. So that was nice, <laughs> even though many of them didn't feel like they could um, step out of the mainstream path, and probably had to go along with a lot of the Corona um, protocols, but. But still, we all got together and celebrated life and and uh, the times we had. And I hope we can all do it again. But I was unbelievably impressed to a man. Every single one was just socially normal, despite the fact that of the most extreme path that I've taken, dodging all this <laughs> my in, in my best effort. Anyway, um, I did, through that... that experience, I did think about a good metaphor to try and explain how I see what I've done. And, um, and Patrick Coffin recently, I liked the expression he used something like, we're in an, a disorganized flotilla of freedom fighters and truthers. <laughs> and that's how it feels. So it, to me, it feels like the mainstream, the matrix, if you, if you want to call it that, is, um, is the Titanic. And they've hit the iceberg at full steam. And there's smoke and dust and um, people in the know, in the engineering rooms and the, and the bridge, they all know that, the, that there's something serious has happened on the Titanic. But they're letting all the passengers not be aware of that. And the passengers that want to try and ignore the smoke and dust and noise and collisions, they just order another bottle of wine, another steak, <laughs> in the dining room and and try and carry on and the band played on you know um meanwhile i i i don't think you know i'm not trying to put a feather in my cap it was just pure luck so much of it was pure luck in my case the way it happened um but i feel that 
I saw the flaws in the story very, very early on. And, um, and it's not like I saw right through everything. But what I tried desperately to do is to get a number of times, I tried to get on just firm, free ground where I could just watch the story and the narrative and the events evolve so that I could make the best choice for me and my family. That's really how I felt that I was pursuing it all. And, um, and that meant Africa in the early days and eventually uh, Serbia and then eventually Mexico and now USA. But basically, um, I feel like I've been trying to build the best life raft I could think of to help the Titanic people when they realize. <laughs> and, I, and it's not like I've got it all figured out at all. But I have managed to step outside of, of the ship, essentially. And, um, and I'm just trying to build, fortify my existence in that flotilla now for, for myself and hopefully my family once we can we can all reunite so that's that's the way i see my um my choices and uh path so far and so i one of i think it was maybe my first broadcast on the podcast was something like i want to be the post-apocalypse radio station and <laughs> i had no idea that was uh october 2019, I had no idea what was coming, of course. Um, but in a sense, I that's this is I'm trying to be the post-apocalypse life raft. I mean, as best as I can. I'm, and it's baby steps. I'm still in the baby step stages because it took me however many countries to get to the firmest ground I think I can find. And I think USA is our best hope. And it's mostly because of the sense of freedom, the live free or die, the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Constitution, um, Logos as well, truthful speech, and um, open debate on best path forward. So uh, First and Second Amendment, <laughs> essentially. And so that's that's really why I feel so good about how I've gotten here. And I'm hoping to make a path to, to make it longer term, that's for sure. But in terms of baby steps, I'm really happy with where I've gotten to. So that's how I would describe the path I've taken and the choices I've taken and my recent interactions with the Matrix. Um, I am interacting with a lot of young people through the hockey um, community nearby now. And it's hard for me to tell. I've definitely socialized with the older people. Um, we do pick up shinny regularly and I find that community the guys, they're probably from 40 to 60. Um, I find it's a really nice mix of paying attention and uh, living in nature and very self-sustaining, self-driven guys that just like to be good sports and have fun and health and fitness and the odd beer. Um, that's all been great. And then now I've just recently started to interact with the younger group through a league I'm in. And they seem good as well, but it's hard to know how much. I think there is a huge gap between the over 40s and the under 40s in terms of how they're seeing things or how much they're seeing all of this. <laughs> but I can say, so I can't, I, I guess I, I have no judgment yet with the younger bunch. They're just, they're just good, nice people, busy with their lives, getting their lives, launching their lives, basically. But the guys 40 to 60, I've been very impressed with the with the openness and the camaraderie and the sportsman sportsmanship so um probably more on that in the future but uh so enjoy this closing clip with michael jones and his recent podcast on mk ultra in michigan and the role they've all played and uh, laurel canyon and all the social engineering over time and um and i've left all the links on the podcast page so please enjoy and i hope to be back within the next uh, week or two. All right, take care. I'm Neil McDougall and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. 
Mr. Sean Hannity um, had this guy named Hal Turner who was showing up at very things like the National Alliance meetings and so forth. And um, he was brought up for trial. And at that point, he said, hey, I'm an FBI agent. Right. It was revealed. Right. Um, that was in the 90s. So um, that, that's exactly I, that's the pattern that I, that I want to talk about here. Right. That's exactly the pattern that has happened in Michigan over this period of time. So, you know, we're all big, one big happy family. We're all Americans. You all pledge allegiance. One nation undivided. That's, that's not true. That's not true. This country has always been a group of people at war with another group of people and trying to disguise the whole thing as if we're all one big happy family. And at this point, the big conflict was between uh, the feds and, and Michigan. Uh, the feds and America first. The feds were controlled by uh, J. Edgar Hoover. He was on board with the uh, internationalist crowd, and that was that. And so what you had here was basically a battle over the mind of the feds. Who are they going to say is a criminal? And at this point, as I indicated, the Jews got involved. So there's an agent, FBI agent in Cincinnati. Cincinnati is a German city, in case you didn't know it. It was traditionally a German city. There's a neighborhood called Over the Rhine, there, which is a beautiful neighborhood. It still is. Uh, anyway, so uh, he gets... Uh, calls that this is a group of Nazis. So he looks into the group, and it turns out it's German women who are reading uh, papal encyclicals, German Catholic women. Well, who put them on? What was the, the Jews? The Jews were the informers here. They put them onto that, and the, the FBI agent broke back to Hoover and said, look, these are a group of people who want us to take care of their enemies for them. These the people are not our enemies, they're their enemies, and we're uh, not part of that operation. So I suggest that you ignore everything that they say. Well, Hoover did not do that because Hoover was playing his own game. And so you have here the basically the question of, uh, can you capture the FBI? And the answer is yes, you can. And the FBI can be used as a weapon to basically suppress dissident behavior. And that's exactly what they did with America first, right after Pearl Harbor. And I'm saying it's continued all the way up to this day. All the way up to this day, there has been a kind of campaign against Michigan. Okay? Now, let's just jump ahead. No, let's not, let's not jump ahead. Let's not jump ahead. Because what happened after this point was you, you had to come up with an alternative to America first, because we don't want people thinking that way. That was a grassroots American conservative movement that represented the interests of the people of the Midwest who made this country the great manufacturing power that it was. That's a significant group of people. It, it has nothing to do with race, okay? It's, it's basically ethnic groups coming over here and being incorporated into family life, into industrial life by people like Henry Ford. Well, they had to come up with an alternative, and that man I mentioned, the publisher, Henry Regnery, was the man who did it. And you're talking about after World War II, there is a new movement, and this new movement is called conservatism. Conservatism. And Henry Regnery, the publisher, publishes two of the most significant books that are kind of the Bibles of conservatism. One is God and Man at Yale by William F. Buckley, and one is uh, The Conservative Mind by uh, Russell Kirk. Russell Kirk was a Michigan guy. Buckley was a, uh, a Yale graduate uh, from New York City who also happened to work for the CIA. So you, there's the setup right there. you got the same conflict right now at the heart of conservatism, even though conservatism is supposed to paper over this whole. So this is all, the books come out, I think, in 1954. Uh, 54 is also the year that the CIA is involved. Uh, not in promoting uh, cultural fronts. The Congress of Cultural Freedom, we found out later that was a CIA front, uh, promoting abstract expressionism and magazines. And I asked, uh, I've always suspected, I asked Joe Sober about this, was National Front, a National Review, a CIA operation? I think it was. I, I can't prove it, but I think it was, simply because Buckley was a CIA agent. You don't really retire from that organization. And they were funding magazines at this time. And they always took the party line, which was internationalism, American 
internationalism that became the anti-communist crusade. So everything, you know, okay, everything's everything's heading in that direction. Uh, you have the Reagan, the Reagan era, the conservatives come in power, and all of this gets suppressed in a sense, and you do have some type of unity, some national unity, because you got wars, and wars always bring about national unity. That's one of the purposes of wars. So you got the World War II, you got the Korean War, and then you got the Vietnam War. And at a certain point, we had this counter movement here, uh, the protest against the anti-war movement, and that's when my generation starts coming into its own. And you're starting to see a, a counter movement that is, has nothing to do with America first. We don't have any idea of what it is. Okay? But it, it arises, it becomes a kind of uh, the, the, what we talk, the hippies. You know I, I guess the hippies in the '60s were, well, uh, there are some authors who claim that the hippies were sort of a another cultural creation in themselves, as far as getting them all doped up, uh, doping okay. up. The, uh, That's right. This is this is an absolutely crucial point, and it gets to like to the heart of MK Ultra. Because at this point, uh, you have a man by the name of Aldous Huxley who wrote a book called Brave New World. And it was his vision of the future. And the future was basically, how do you control people and make them love their servitude? And one of the main ways, he says, uh, is drugs. He calls the drug Soma. It's a, it's a mythical drug. And he goes into explaining what, you know, the very, he's hoping that there will be some type of uh, a synthetically created drug that will give you the best of both worlds. In other words, you won't get, to, won't have side effects. It'll make you happy, and it'll make you docile as well. And there, and I think that came to the fore as well during the Vietnam War. I think that there are people like uh, Timothy Leary, who was a big figure at this point. I think he was working for the CIA, and I think drugs, sex, sex, drugs, and rock and roll basically were the antidote to the anti-war movement. I think you've written extensively on that in Dionysus Rising. Um, a good author also who some of his works isn't so great, but I always liked Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon by uh, Dave McGowan, who seemed to link um, basically everyone in that Laurel Canyon scene had some sort of military background if you just scratch the surface right. a little bit right. frank zappa and all these people there there was yeah, uh, jim morrison's father was an admiral right jim morrison is also interesting because he calls his band the doors based on huxley's book the doors of perception which was about lsd the big band i think the most important one was grateful dead i think mm. i think that became a, 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 a an lsd distribution point all the way until the time he died. It may still be that. It may, I don't know whether it's still that, but it, one of the main purposes of this band was to spread the, the use of LSD. They had a guy named Owlsley who was a chemist who would make it and distribute it at concerts like that. Now, this is the point. Uh, what do you, the question comes down to, what do you think about drugs? What do you think they are? Are they something they make you feel, that make you feel good? Or are they a tool that other people use to make you feel good and docile so that they can control you. And I think that's the real hidden grammar of drugs. And I think it's the hidden grammar of drug legalization in this country. And I think that's precisely what happened to Michigan. That's exactly what happened to Michigan. It happened to the entire country, but we're focusing on Michigan because Michigan was a hotbed of opposition to uh, Washington and and uh, uh, Wall Street in New York. So you think like the collapse of Detroit was a, a purpose-driven agenda, like Detroit is ruined, um, and Michigan in general, that there was a, it wasn't just that the auto industry caved. Um, it was a, a blight that was somehow planned. I, I wrote a book about that angle. It's called The Slaughter of Cities, urban renewal and as ethnic cleansing about the story of who wrecked Detroit. Uh, and I talk about other cities, Philadelphia, Boston, and Chicago in, in the same book. That is called social engineering. 
So if you want to take this, the big category, it's called social engineering. You could engage in social engineering by changing the environment, which is pretty much what these people did to the cities during this period of time because they broke up the ethnic neighborhoods at this period of time, used the highway system to break up the ethnic neighborhoods. Now, if you read Huxley, who I think is the mastermind of this campaign of social engineering, he talks about social engineering, and he says that the biggest problem we're facing in the world is overpopulation. Now, this is not new. This is the eugenics movement. He's a firm believer in the eugenics movement. Uh, but if you localize it uh, in the United States, you focus the issue, well, what's the biggest cause of overpopulation? Well, it's the Catholic Church. He says that in his book. This, I'm talking about the, the, the memoir he wrote 25 years after uh, 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 Brave New World came out. So this appeared in 1958, where it kind of explains the whole thing to you. So he talks about the Catholic Church. Why is the Catholic Church a problem? Well, because they don't approve of birth control. And the fundamental issue for Huxley is overpopulation, which means we have to have people accepting birth control. We have to have birth control because we're all going to die. We're all going to starve to death. Paul Ehrlich wrote a book. We're all going to starve to death by 1976. I, maybe it happened. Maybe I missed it. Maybe we did all starve to death in 76. I don't know. Maybe I was doing something else at the time. Or maybe it was crazy to begin with. Maybe this idea was crazy to begin with, but it wasn't crazy for Huxley. And Huxley was a very influential figure at this point. And so the focus of this campaign was on the Catholic Church. Now, that is exactly the focus of the urban renewal campaigns in places like Detroit. In other words, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston. What did they have in common? They had, uh, they had ethnic neighborhoods that were very powerful politically. If you think of Mayor Daley in Chicago during this period of time, the, the uh, Democratic Convention in 1968, that was it had that had ethnic battle written all over it, and nobody seemed to understand it. There's a uh, a, a uh, clip, a film uh, of the convention, and there's Abraham Ribicoff lecturing Mayor Daley about how he's a Nazi because his police are beating up hippies. And then you cut to Mayor Daley, and you can see it. He's the veins in his neck are bulging. He says, you fucking kike, go back to Connecticut. This is ethnic warfare. Because the real armature of American life is the triple melting pot. It's three ethnic groups based on three religions, Protestant, Catholic, and Jew. And at this point, because of people like Huxley, because of the fear of overpopulation, you had the Protestants and the Jews uniting in battle against the Catholics. They were going to destroy Catholic political power, destroy the baby boom, okay? And you do that by attacking the next generation, which would be me, my generation, which came, uh, I was born in 48, so I'm at the, uh, the older end of the baby boom. And so what you do is you go after those Catholic young people. And what do you do? You convince them to uh, smoke dope and have sex. And how do you do that? By getting them to buy records and listen to bands like The Grateful Dead, The Doors. You, you know all the, the, the people I'm talking about. And that was an incredibly destructive, but from their point of view, a successful campaign because it basically blunted it destroyed Catholic political power in the United States.
Yeah. 